Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. I love that song. And you'll see from God's word together with me how that theme of Christ's resurrection. You know, if our problem is that we're dead in our sin, what a mystery. How can somebody who's dead uh, be fixed, be rescued? It's a mystery because it's impossible unless and until the glorious mystery of the resurrection is revealed. And so we want to look together this morning at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, although really we're just going to bounce uh, the ball right there and then we're going to be in a many other scriptures about these incisive themes that rise out of this text in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And as we prepare to open God's word together, let's pray. Great God who has revealed this wondrous mystery, Lord of the harvest, we ask now that you would water the hearts of those who will hear your word. Cause me and all of those who hear my voice to behold you in the light of faith now so that we might behold you in the fullness of sight soon hereafter. Oh Lord, as I preach this sermon from your holy word, may I exalt the Savior even as I humble sinners so that your work of grace might be done in marvelous power. May the seed sown in weakness by these sinful fleshly lips be raised in power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. In his name we ask this, amen. Talk to you this morning about death, deception, and deliverance. I actually want to talk to you in the next few minutes about the deception of sin, which means that I want to talk to you this morning about something that's in you that is hidden from you. That's going to make this sermon particularly difficult to get through, if not for the Spirit of God. Because actually, one of the ultimate proofs of your sinfulness is that you don't really understand or buy into your own sinfulness. Two illustrations of this, one from the world of cartoons and one from the world of classical philosophy. First from cartoons. It's winter in the first panel of this Peanuts comic strip. And Lucy walks up to Linus and she sticks out her hands and she says, feel how cold my hands are. And Linus reaches out and touches her hand and says, brr, your hands are as cold as ice. But then in the next panel, Linus blinks and he points his finger at Lucy and he asks this question. Well, how can you tell how cold your hands are if you're the one inside of them? He was able to touch the outside of her hands and feel how cold they are, but it is a question, if someone is corrupted within, wouldn't part of that corruption be an inability to rightly ascertain and diagnose the temperature of that corruption? And so from cartoons, we go to philosophy, a quote that has always haunted me from Soren Kierkegaard. And if you know anything about Kierkegaard, he wouldn't mind moving from cartoons to him because part of his philosophy is how uh, abstract metaphors and similes make, make compelling points. 
So Kierkegaard simply asks or makes this statement. One cannot be profoundly corrupted if at the same time on one's own without external help one can see how one is profoundly corrupted. One cannot be profoundly corrupted if at the same time on one's own without external help one can see how one is profoundly corrupted. You see death and deception and then deliverance from these things. Death is something we cannot deliver ourselves from. And the deception of sin is not even something that we can deliver ourselves from on our own. Sin and temptation deceive us into thinking that death is life. And sin deceives us into thinking that deception isn't really deception. You think in the moment of temptation that your lust will lead you to the fullness of enjoyment. But reality is that your lust will lead you to the fullness of enslavement and regret. You think in the moment of temptation that God's law is like a chain that binds and restricts you. But reality is that it is the law of God that is the pathway and the gateway to an an unlimited kind of freedom in the holiness of the presence of God through redemption. In our text this morning, verse 12 of James 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. In verse 12, we have life. We'll see in verse 15, it says death. Sin, when it's fully grown, will bring forth death. But then we'll see life again in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth, he brought us to life by the word of truth. After all, what is there but birth and death? Behind birth and death, we'll find in our text human nature in verses 13 through 15, and then the divine nature in verses 17 and 18. First, let's look at death and what it means when it talks about death. It says in verse 13 that each one is tempted, or it says in verse 14, each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin brings forth death. What does this mean exactly and precisely? Well, we could take death in the broadest possible way of understanding it, and we would be right in concluding from the Bible that every form of disintegration and collapse and death is included here. Spiritual death in relation to God. The very God who created us in love and created us in his image and created us in relationship with him, we suffer spiritual death and the severing of that relationship. This also refers to physical death. We see physical death as the separation of the soul from this body when this body ceases uh, to live. And we even see death as eternal death, the separation of the soul from the love of God forever in the experience of the wrath of God in the lake of fire or hell. Death in every way that we could define it is included here. 
And there's actually an inevitability to this process. And make no mistake, it's a process that's described in verse 15. You see the steps, the desire and the conception and the birth and then the slow growth and then the death. This is a process. And so James means for us to start thinking that the conclusion is contained in the introduction. That is, if you play with fire, there's an inevitable conclusion. If you dance with the devil, there's an inevitable conclusion. The end is implicit in the beginning. One of the things that this text ought to wake us up to is that if we play with the desire and sort of revolve it and rotate it in our mind's eye, then that desire and our dallying with it is the first step toward an inevitable process of death. If we entertain the thoughts, we will, before we know it, be dropping into the actions. If we play with a desire that is opening the doorway to death. That's why he says in verse 16, do not be deceived. Once you start the process, you aren't going to be able to stop the process. There's an inevitability to this, and that's one of the things that he's warning us about. And he's warning us that sin always leads to death. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.21, but what fruit do you now have that you were getting from the sins that you committed in the former time? Now you are ashamed of them, for the end of those things is death, Romans 6, 21. And a strong text right out of Ezekiel chapter 18, in the first four verses, God begins by saying, uh, As I live, I'm sovereign Lord over all the fathers, all the sons, and all of humanity. And then he says in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, As I live, declares the Lord, the soul that sins shall die. Deception and death, and how can we be delivered therefrom? Listen to what the, the writer of the, of the wisdom book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, reading from verse 32 down through verse 36. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear my instruction and become wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself and all those who hate me love death. What, a, what an antithesis for wisdom, even the personification of the Logos, our Lord Christ, to say, all who hate me love death. Do not be deceived. Let me show you one more text about sin and death. And this is from the prophet Jeremiah. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 4, this text uh, an almost poetic text in the prophet Jeremiah makes the point that sin always brings death. And the interesting thing is we prepare to read from Jeremiah 4 is simply to, to tell you this. The Hebrew of Jeremiah 4 uses the same Hebrew constructions as are found in Genesis 1 and 2. When God brings order 
out of chaos. But Jeremiah 4, describing sin, uses the very same Hebraic terminology to say that sin brings to birth chaos out of what should be God's good order. Jeremiah 4, verse 10, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. And at that time, I'll be said to this people, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert blows toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds and chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around. Because she's rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom. And it is bitter. And it has reached your very heart. Verse 19, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart beats wildly, and I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash, and the whole land is laid to waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, and my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked upon the earth, and behold, it was tohu va bohu, in a state of chaos, without form and void. And I looked to the heavens, and they had no light. And I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And I looked on the hills, and they moved to and fro. And I looked, behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. And I looked, and behold, the fruitful land, be fruitful and multiply, the fruitful land became a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruin before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full Prophet Jeremiah says that sin brings death in reversing the very blessedness of God's good, very good work in creation. Sin always leads to fruitlessness. Righteousness always leads to fruitfulness. Sin always makes a desert and a barren wasteland where a beautiful garden ought to be. Sin brings violence where harmony ought to be. Sin brings slavery where freedom ought to be. Sin brings weeping where rejoicing ought to be. Sin brings death where life ought to be. Sin always brings death. The offer to sin is always an offer toward pleasure. 
but the ultimate delivery of sin is always a delivery of death. Somebody said sin's marketing department is far ahead of its manufacturing department. And that's true. All sin can do is market and promise the world, but all that it manufactures is the destruction of the world. And if you look at the pictures of sin in James chapter 1, in verse 15, I, I picture a dragon when I read verse 15. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown. Those sinful desires that arise in your heart, you can pet them and welcome them. It's like a tiger cub. And when it's little, you think it's nice to have around. But instead of being tolerated and coddled and protected by you, you do that one minute, one hour, one day too long, and those desires have become a dragon. And how long will it be until with claws like knives, that dragon shreds your face? Notice that though the Slow growth of sin is emphasized in verse 15. James, a very colorful writer, a very vivid and creative illustrator, uses a slow burn or a slow growth in verse 15. He uses a quick one in verse 14. Because in verse 14, he says, each one is tempted when he is lured using a fishing illustration and enticed by his own desire. How long does that take? Fish sees hook. Fish swims at hook and swallows it. It happens so fast. You see the bobber go down and the whole thing's done. But in verse 15, it's a slow and gradually growing monster moment by moment and day by day. This is what makes sin so insidious. Because you may be in sin and sin hasn't gotten you yet. You're in sin and your life hasn't fallen apart. You're in sin and you're still petting that lion cub. But it is not because it's not going to destroy you. It's just because it hasn't yet fully grown in, 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 and then it will kill you. How long is it going to be before that sin that you're protecting, before that sin that you lied about last week, before that sin that you have avoided accountability about, how long is it going to be before that thing slices you into your very heart? We are so vulnerable and so susceptible to sin. And at the same time, each one of you is so convinced that you are an exception. Everybody else is vulnerable, not you. Everybody else's uh, tiger cub is going to shred them, but not yours. This is what makes the human condition so insidious because we are so susceptible to being wrong and we are so often convinced that we are right and we can handle it. So that leads us to this conclusion, right? I sure hope you already agree with me about this. A huge part, church, a huge part of Christian maturity is the avoidance of self-reliance. A huge part of Christian sanctification is the very fact that the Holy Spirit convinces you that in your flesh dwells no good thing. And so the most mature Christian is the least self-reliant Christian. 
the good news of James is that we are not only asked, but we are beckoned, almost bribed in a righteous way to depend on our good and generous God. That's why in the next verse, in verse 17, he's going to say, every good thing that you could ever want is given by, to you gladly by your, by your hilariously happy father who delights in nothing more than to give good gifts to his children. The theme of James is a living faith. And a living faith is this pronunciation. I don't have what I need, but I have faith in God to give it to me. A living faith is this renunciation. I don't got this. God's got this. And faith places all of my me inside of God's promises, God's covenant, God's salvation. That's what living faith does. It clings to God. Living faith is a desperate lunge out of self and into the Savior. Death, deception, and deliverance. I realize we talked about the deception of sin last week, and I'm not planning on saying the same things this week, but it's such a tangled and tricky subject that I think it merits more than just a few minutes of our attention. Because this is one area where I know you, right now, you can be in the presence of good Bible teaching and you're just, you're going north to south, yes, 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 I agree, I agree, I agree. But in a couple of hours, when you're alone and the Bible is closed, and there is a war within your soul, you will convince yourself that the things you believed a couple of hours ago don't apply to you right now in this particular situation. It's because I'm talking to you about something that is hidden from you. And the one that is hiding this something from you is you. One cannot be profoundly corrupted if at the same time on one's own without external help one can see how one is profoundly corrupted. So we need deliverance from deception. You understand that deception, do you understand that deception is a massive theme in the Bible? Genesis 3, verse 13. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And he did deceive her. And that is one of the main reasons why she ate. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, that great dragon shall be thrown down, that ancient serpent named the devil and Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world world. Genesis 3, one woman deceived. Revelation 12, the one who has deceived the whole world. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, lo and the devil who deceived the nations shall be thrown into the lake of fire. We see from that origin story of sin and deception and death to that culminating revelation story. In that origin story, as long as Eve could see things clearly, she was fine. But when the serpent deceived her, she ate. Deception has always been Satan's modus operandi. 
Satan always approaches with this question, with, with like a, you know, uh, well, what, what did God exactly say? And how, are you sure this applies to you at this time? And, and so Satan just comes up to Eve and asks her a simple question, you know, well, what has God said? And, and, he, and he tempts her with his little offer. It's almost like I wish we could go back and rewrite the story positively. C.S. Lewis uh, actually tries to do that in the, I think it's the third volume of the Space Trilogy that he writes. But uh, um, what, if, what if Eve had answered the serpent's question correctly? What would have been a correct answer when Satan says, well, has God really said this? Don't you want this tree? Eve should have said, are you out of your mind? Are you off your reptilian rocker for crying out loud, look around, this is Eden. God made a paradise and he put us here. And she should have said, watch, God made a paradise and he didn't make us earn it. He didn't go, there's paradise, earn enough tickets from this machine and you can have it. God made the paradise and he just put us down in it because he's so generous and he loves us so much. So, 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 serpent, if there is something that God hasn't given us, God must have a better reason for not giving that thing to us than he does for giving it to us. And it would be crazy to outguess and outthink God. No way. Why? She shouldn't say, why would I do that? Because God's God and he's good and he loves me and he's given me everything. But she didn't say that. And I'm, I'm belaboring this to you because I don't think you're going to naturally say that the next time you're offered the deception of sin. The human heart's just not that way. It needs to be transformed day by day by day because we so easily become deceived about the goodness of the law of God. And we so easily become deceived about the outcome of disobeying the law of God. We become so deceived about what's best for us in the present and what's best for us in the future, the very same way that our mother Eve was deceived by that. Sin and deception turns reality upside down. Back to the origin story, right? Here's Eden. We have God making Adam and then making Eve and then giving Adam and Eve dominion over the natural order, which is the animals. But the inversion of the deception of sin has a woman listening to an animal, and then the husband listening to the wife, and all of them refusing to listen to God. Deception is inversion all the way back to the origin story. It turns reality upside down. Sin denies that following God's commands leads to blessing. Sin denies that disobeying God's demands uh, leads to trouble. Sin denies that sowing leads to reaping and that sin itself has consequences. It flips it all upside down and inverts it. Sin promises pleasure and blessing and that if you obey it, you'll get good consequences, but it, it's, that's just the deception of sin. The deception of sin is summarized, is it not? In that verse, you probably all know Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And then there's that chilling rhetorical question. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sin 
makes self-knowledge well-nigh impossible. Sin not only makes self-cure impossible, it's worse than that. Sin makes even self-diagnosis impossible. Not only can you not fix yourself, but you can't even see what's really wrong with yourself. This is how dangerous the deception of sin is. An old proverb says something like this, a, a blind eye is worse than a lame leg because a blind eye can be the cause of a fall that lames both the arms and the legs. You see, the false vision is the problem behind the other problems and disabilities. The false thinking, the false seeing is what leads to more and more danger and destruction and death. And so if this is the case, and it is, we need deliverance from death and deception. And now I want to show you three steps toward uh, deliverance from deception and death. And these three steps, uh, I can even show them to you from God's Word and from my personal ministry experience uh, with, uh, with a guarantee. Uh, true. I have never known anybody who followed all three of these steps who ended up ultimately defeated by sin. I've known a lot of somebodies who struggle with sin. One of them is talking to you right now. I've known a lot of somebodies who stumble into sin and need to repent. That's me. But nobody I know who has taken these three steps so seriously and stuck with them, nobody I know who's stuck with all three of these things has been ultimately defeated by deception and death of sin. Or the other way of saying it is this. Everyone that I know who used to be in the church, but who has drifted away and now seems to be caught in the death grip of sin and deception and death, everyone I know to whom that has occurred, it's always because they have let go of one or two or all three of these simple and strong security measures. And so here they are. Number one, receive the call of God in the gospel. Receive the call of God in the gospel. Sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love how it's put in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were Oh, church, listen to that past tense. Listen to it. Thanks be to God that though you were the slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And then he says in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin brings death. Question, how does a dead person get out of death? Sin brings death. How does a dead person get out of death? You see, this 
This is why there is, there is an unrelenting insistence on a gospel message that is not saying, oh, everybody, unsin your way out of sin. Live your own way out of death. Uh, uncondemn yourself out of your condemnation. That's not how you do it. Question, what does it take to get out of death? Answer, a resurrection. This is why Christ died on the bloody spike, why they put his cold body in the tomb, and why his closed eyes snapped open and he walked out of the grave. Because this is the good news of the gospel. The first security measure that you've got to take to be delivered from deception and death is to receive the call of God in the gospel. Second, once you've received the gospel, second step, value the word of God in the Bible. Value the word of God in the Bible. Would you listen or would you turn with me to Psalm 119? Hey, Psalm 119, to my, to my mind, it, it's never going to be improved upon. It's like the best. It's just the best. Psalm 119. Verses, uh, let's just read the, the first two, uh, the first two stanzas. It says in Psalm 119, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong. They walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eye on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. God's word is the light that throws off the deception of sin. God's word is the only light that can unveil the deception of sin. God's word is the very instrument that he utilizes to make you undeceived. And even more than that, God's word is like in these verses, it's saying God's word is not only the light, but God's word is the warm sunlight or the warm fire that molds and reshapes your affections and your desires so that you want the good and the beautiful and the true. So value the word of God in the Bible. Maybe a step you need to take, uh, strike the maybe, a step you need to take is you need to gaze on the good and the true and the beautiful a lot longer than you gaze on the vain and the entertaining and the vile. Maybe it's time to back up and stop entertaining ourselves with that which is not true or good or beautiful because we know that we struggle with the flesh 
It's not some sort of weird prudery or puritanism. It's, it's mature self-knowledge that says, I'm aware that I'm easily deceived and I want to stay on the path of the good and the true and the beautiful and I want right desires. And so I meditate on God's word so that my mind is renewed so that I have light on my path and I stay on that path. Receive the call of God in the gospel. Second, value the word of God in the Bible. And third and finally, lean on the people of God in the church. Lean on the people of God in the church. This is to say that resisting sin is a community project. Like Hebrews 3.13 says, uh, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And look uh, with me at uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 27. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 27 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And let our hearts be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And let our bodies be washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is a warning passage and the particular warning here is that if in your sin you isolate yourself from the covenant people of God and you refuse to lean on the people of God and participate in the means of grace through corporate worship and you refuse that, then, then uh, you stay out there long enough and you'll never make it back. That's the warning. And so the safety measure is to lean on the people of God. Listen, we are all prone to deception. I want things to be the way that I want them to be. And I, let me be the first to admit, the story I tell myself about life is very persuasive to me. It just doesn't happen to be right all the time. So we so often end up wrong. And we need other voices that are outside of our head, outside of our desires, that'll tell us things that we wouldn't tell ourselves and wouldn't want to hear if we came across them randomly on the street. But we need a loving sister, a loving brother to tell us those things. You need the preaching of the Word of God from a minister of the gospel who is not trying to tickle your ears and keep you donating to some cause, but who is blood earnest on delivering the truth. We need solid Christian friends and mentors who will help us. Would you pray for our ABF leaders, for our youth leaders, for our church members to carry out this ministry with one another? Defeating deception is a community project. No one can unplug from the matrix alone. We need somebody who's already made it out to pull us out. That's why we need each other. That's why it says you'll be in Hebrews 3.13, you'll be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin unless, some, unless the community helps to pull you away from that. So would you pray for an open heart that when my brothers and sisters speak to me, I'll have a teachable heart. 
And would you pray for, would you pray for um, uh, uh, a, a bold and brokenhearted care and compassion and concern and courage that you would be the one to speak that needed word to those who need to hear it? Receive the call of God in the gospel. Value the word of God in the Bible and lean on the people of God in the church. Listen, we will all fail. But if we receive the call of God in the gospel, we know that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all of our sin. Listen, we will all lose our way temporarily. But if we value the word of God, it will shine a light that'll bring us back to the path that we ought to be on. And listen, we will all struggle and stumble. But if we lean on the people of God, they will pull us back into the church and into the ways of righteousness so that we can repent and so that we can be restored. It's here that we find by God's saving grace, deliverance from deception and death. Let's bow together for prayer. We bow for prayer. Let me uh, use this prayer time uh, just to guide you in a time of um, personal prayer. To say, uh, God, I know that your word is light. And God, I know that there is darkness in my desires and darkness in my mind. Spirit of God, would you shine the perfect light of your word precisely into the shadowy dark spots of my character, my affections, my habits, my desires. As you pray, know this, God opposes the proud. If there's a proud defensiveness, say, God, I don't want that anymore. Take it from me. But God draws near to the brokenhearted. Say, God, lift the pride and the defense away from me and give me a humble, broken heart. And oh, great God, Give to us to receive your call in the gospel, to value your truth in your word, and to lean on one another in your church, all because of Jesus Christ and his marvelous grace. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.